This is the Intego Mac Podcast. The voice of Mac security. For August 31st, 2018. In this week's episode, Apple has released a supplemental OS update for one particular product and updates the firmware for a discontinued product. Can Touch ID really be fooled by a fake finger? Plus, two recent malware exploits exemplify the inventive, albeit malicious ways, hackers develop new methods to gain control of your machines and your data. We'll discuss how they work and how clever they are. The Intego Mac Podcast is presented by Intego, makers of security and utility software, exclusively for Apple products since 1997. Now, here are the hosts of the Intego Mac Podcast, Kirk McElhern and Josh Long. Apple is constantly releasing updates, hardware and software and firmware, and sometimes Apple surprises us by releasing an update for a product that we thought was not only dead, but forgotten about. This week, Apple released a firmware update for the Airport Express, so it supports AirPlay 2. The Airport Express is that little sort of Apple TV-sized Wi-Fi hotspot, and you can use it to extend your Wi-Fi network, and you can also use it, and here's the real cool thing, it has a, a headphone jack in it, and you can put a, a one-eighth inch plug into it and plug that into an amplifier. So basically, you could be running music from your iMac in the family room upstairs to a small stereo you have in the bedroom over wireless, and, and the amplifier doesn't need to have the wireless capability. No one expected Apple to release an update that brings AirPlay 2 support to this device. One of the cool things about AirPlay 2 is that you can have music playing through multiple devices at the same time. Now, if you're one of those people who wants the same music in the bedroom, the living room, the shower, the dining room, you can do that. And previously with AirPlay 1, this would work, but they'd be slightly out of sync. And now they're all in sync. Now, the most interesting thing is that this is a discontinued product. It's been discontinued for a couple of years. The Apple TV 3 had a similar jack, so you could use that to turn any device into an AirPlay receiver, but the Apple TV 4 doesn't. So I not only am surprised that they released this update, but that makes me wonder, are they going to come out with a new device to replace it or to replace the Apple TV for AirPlay 2? Josh, do you use any AirPlay audio stuff in your house? Well, I do use AirPlay mirroring. Um, so if I'm playing something on my iPhone and I want it to show up on my TV, then uh, I have a way to cast to, to my Apple TV. Um, but I haven't really used it for music. Don't use the word cast. That's the Google word. Uh, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> it is. It's the verb to use the Google Chromecast or whatever it is. But AirPlay for audio is a little bit different, obviously, because you can send it to so many different devices. I actually use AirPlay everywhere, even in my office. My iMac is not connected to my amplifier. I have an actual amplifier and, and bookshelf speakers on my desk and all that. The reason it's not connected is because if you do that... Let's say you run a cable from the headphone jack to the amplifier. What happens is you don't just get the music, but you get all the system sounds. And I don't want that. That means if my amplifier is off, then I can't hear the system sounds. And sometimes, for instance, before we started recording here, we were talking over Skype, and I'm just using my internal speakers on my iMac to hear you guys. I don't want to have to turn on my amplifier to do that every time I want to hear anything on my Mac, even watch, I don't know, a YouTube video. So AirPlay, I, I really like AirPlay. And, and this is interesting, and I look forward to see whether Apple's going to come up with some new little AirPlay appliance when they release new products next month. And the other thing that I'm curious about is whether if, if Apple is still releasing firmware updates to add features to a discontinued ancient product, 
And just for for reference, this product came out in 2012, I think it was. And the Wi-Fi standard that I was using at the time, it was 802.11n. So if anyone has bought a wireless router in the past several years, you know that they've been on 802.11ac and even now 802.11ac wave 2 which is kind of a mouthful but there's like two wireless standards like that have come out since then and so that gives you some idea of how old this device is and the, the technology in it so uh you know is apple going to release a firmware update with wpa3 support probably not yeah i kind of doubt that if there's something else like like the crack vulnerabilities, uh, maybe Apple will still release an update for that. Uh, it took Apple a really long time to release a patch for that particular vulnerability, which we talked about a while back on the podcast. Okay, so in other news, Apple released a supplemental update. You know what those are. Those are the ones where Apple releases a big update and says, oops, and then has to release a supplemental update for it. So this one is for the 2018 MacBook Pro, and it apparently addresses some audio and kernel panic issues. This didn't happen five years ago. We didn't have supplemental updates, or they were extremely rare, and we see them often now. And as we've discussed previously on the show, one of the problems is that the version numbers don't change. So if you're administering a bunch of Macs or iOS devices for a school, a business, whatever, it's hard for you to know what's up to date and what's not. Right. That is definitely a challenge. It, you you want to have the, the if you're updating the firmware or you're updating the OS, it's important for those version numbers to change. Otherwise, you have no way to tell over the network, oh, yeah, that machine was updated. No worries. You know, so I do agree that is a challenge. Now, it is important to note this is not specifically a security related update. Not at all. No, this is something that's designed to address audio and kernel panic issues. So basically, if you had a, a 2018 MacBook Pro and it was crashing a lot, well, this update might fix some of those crashing problems. And if you don't know what a kernel panic is, then you may never have seen one. And if so, congratulations, because you don't like them. Generally, a kernel panic is when your screen goes dark and all of a sudden you see these lines of code coming down at kind of white on black or something like that. The kernel panic is when the very lowest level of the operating system says, oops, I give up. And the biggest problem with kernel panics is that they'll often happen as soon as you start up your Mac and, and fixing them can be really problematic and time consuming. One other bit of news from Apple, they released a document and I'll link to it in the show notes. It's called Prepare Your Institution for iOS 12 or Mac OS. And this is full of security related changes that are coming out, honestly, in just a few weeks. And that if you run some sort of institution where you're administering, I don't know, hundreds of Macs and iOS devices, there's a lot of things you may have to change. Right. One of these things is that um, Apple says they'll completely distrust semantic certificate authorities as early as fall 2018. So what the heck does that mean? Well, semantic used to issue certificates. Say you had a website and you wanted to have it be HTTPS secured. And Symantec was one of those companies that used to issue certificates. Well, they stopped doing that because basically they had done some boneheaded things and really kind of screwed up. And so they were kind of forced to stop issuing certificates. So there are still some websites out there that are using these semantics uh, certificates. And Google's Chrome browser, 
uh, is going to be dropping support. If you're if you're using Chrome Canary, which is kind of the developer preview version of Chrome, it's already stopped supporting semantic certificates. And so you start getting a lot of these error messages when you're going to a lot of fairly popular sites that are still using these old certificates. So this isn't just Apple picking on semantic. This is the entire industry who's agreed that we can't trust semantic anymore. Right. And, and you can't get a semantic certificate anymore. I think it was Digicert that bought that part of the, of the company. You know, anyone who's still using a semantic certificate at this point, um, I, I guess the, the main thing to know about it is that um, that system was kind of compromised. And so basically nobody should be trusting semantic certificates anymore. They're dead and gone and should be all replaced by now. If you haven't replaced it yet, that is something that you need to be aware of and make sure that you update. Okay. In this document are all sorts of changes that, well, if you're a system administrator, you'll understand what they mean, but most Mac users won't have to worry about them. One of them is just to mention that the 32-bit processes will trigger an alert on launch. Now we talked about that a few weeks ago the difference between 32-bit and 64-bit apps. But it says that you can prevent the alert by creating a custom configuration profile. Is this just to make things easier on users, or is there some logical reason to not warn people that their software may soon be out of date? Yeah, I, I think probably the main idea behind this is, as you were talking about, schools or businesses that manage hundreds of computers, Macs, if they want to push out something to those devices so that they're not constantly getting bombarded by their users of, oh, my app says it's out of date. Yeah, I know. Well, that's an internal app, and we had a developer write that three years ago, and we don't really feel like updating it right now. We'll get to it eventually. If they, if they want to just kind of avoid those kind of uh, support tickets, then this is a way that they can can do that. It's not something that your average user is going to want to set up on their machine necessarily, because it is good to know that a version of an app that you might be using is out of date. Okay, so if you are a sysadmin, check out this document. You'll know what all the stuff means. In other news, we were talking about this before the show. Remember when Touch ID came out? This goes back a number of years now. What is the iPhone 5S was the first to have Touch ID? And the first thing that people thought, it'll be easy to bypass this. They'll just take silly putty and put their fingerprint and all that. Well, Touch ID has proven to be extremely resilient to cracks. But you found an interesting article by someone who, as he says, at my home as a totally noob, was able to clone his finger to bypass Touch ID. Tell us about this. It looks like a fascinating project for the weekend. <laughs> yeah. So so this guy, he, you know, to be fair, he's an Apple security researcher and he, he has written articles on Apple security before. So he's not, I, I wouldn't describe him as a total noob. Yeah, he's cheating there. <laughs> but I mean, when it comes to like physical security and, you know, cloning a fingerprint, I think that's kind of what he was talking about here. And this researcher's name, I, I had to look up the proper pronunciation of this. So um, here's what Google says is the proper way to pronounce his name. Wojciech Reguła. Sorry about that, Wojciech. We just wanted to make sure we pronounced your name as close as possible to the way it should be. Right. So Wojciech says that with some fairly, you know, simple to obtain materials, a total noob, anybody who's never done something like this before, can clone their fingerprints and create a, a little thing that they can stick on their Touch ID sensor on, on their iPhone or iPad and log into it. Okay, so for this project, you need tracing paper, PCB, I don't know what PCB is, 
you need a photo etcher, you need some NA2S208 solution, you need to apply a graphite coating to it, you need some wood glue, and about 24 hours. Yep, that pretty much sums it up. And, <laughs> and so once you do this, then you get this kind of awkward, you know, hard sort of piece of plastic that you can then, you know, stick onto your Touch ID sensor and then... If you're really lucky and the stars align, then you can log into your Touch ID device. So, and I'm sure our regular listeners know that we're going to bring up our favorite guest star here, Tom Cruise, who would be doing this in a movie. What's interesting is that Tom Cruise would do this in about three minutes flat in someone's closet, hanging upside down from the from the, the coat rail or whatever. Whereas this guy says it takes 24 hours. Right. So this is not one of those scenarios where you're at a dinner party, you lift a, you know, a glass that somebody has touched, and then in minutes you're breaking into their device. It's not quite that simple. Isn't that what James Bond did in Casino Royale? Is that the one? They took the glass for the fingerprint, but yeah, this is a 24-hour process. But hey, if you've got all these things at home and you want to try a weekend project, Go to it and let us know if it works out for you. Yeah, we'd definitely be interested in hearing about your attempts to bypass Touch ID at home. Okay, we're going to take a short break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about some really cool tricks that have been discovered to sneak into Max and do some shifty things. If you or someone you know has got a new MacBook or iMac or switched to the Mac from Windows, be sure to check out Indigo's new Mac User Center. It's a one-stop collection of the things you'll need to know about using your Mac. Intego's new Mac User Center covers plenty of the basics to get you running smoothly and smartly in no time. Of course, one of the first steps you'll want to take is to install Mac security software from Intego to keep yourself protected. And right now, Intego Mac podcast listeners can get 50% savings on Intego software, including Mac Premium Bundle X9. Mac Premium Bundle X9 is a suite of terrific Intego software that includes the antivirus, anti-phishing, and anti-spyware protection of Intego Virus Barrier, home and hotspot firewall security from Intego Net Barrier, parental controls for peace of mind from Intego Content Barrier, and much more to help protect, secure, and organize your Mac. Download the free trial of Mac Premium Bundle X9 from Intego.com today, and then use the promo code Intego Podcast at checkout to save 50%. That's Intego Podcast to save 50% on complete Mac protection and security with Intego's Mac Premium Bundle X9. Intego, devoted to protecting Apple products since 1997. Visit Intego.com today. So this week you wrote an article for the Mac Security Blog. And it is called, can you give me some reverb here? Operation, Operation Apple, Apple Juice Apple and OS X Lazarus, 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 Rise of a Mac APT. APT. Can we start by saying what is an APT? I'm not familiar with this term. All right. An APT is the industry jargon abbreviation for Advanced Persistent Threat. So basically what this means is... Is this like anthrax? <laughs> no, this is like... This is a digital threat. So let, let's say that somebody with like, you know, nation state funding and resources is targeting you. And so they've, they've hired a team of hackers to find some cool, new, unique way to break into your computer and steal data from you or whatever it is they're trying to do to spy on you or things like that. Have you been sleeping well lately, Josh? <laughs> I never sleep well. <laughs> you seem to be worried about nation-state caliber threat actors lately. 
I wonder what you've been hiding behind your mask there. Well, after writing this article now, I'm kind of worried about North Korea trying to hack into all of my accounts. Okay, so tell us more about this. This is actually pretty interesting. So who is this threat actor that we're talking about in the context of Lazarus? There's a sort of hacking team called the Lazarus Group. That's This is kind of a, a nickname that's been come up with for them. And basically, they, they're believed to, to have ties to the government of North Korea for a variety of reasons. They, there have been a number of attacks that this group has perpetrated against the government of South Korea as far back as 2009. And the Sony Pictures breach in 2014, that was a very uh, <laughs> public uh, attack, uh, very well known, that is. And they've developed to this malware that's sometimes called Fall Chill, and sometimes it's just called Lazarus and named after the, this uh, hacking team. And they just released, or it was just recently kind of discovered that they had released back in April, rather, this new version of a hacking tool that targets Mac users for the first time. They've never targeted Mac users before. Now they actually have a fake product out there that people can download and it installs a backdoor into your computer. So a backdoor is a way that they can basically enter your computer, even through a firewall and get access to anything that's going on. So what's kind of interesting about this is that um, they took what seems like a legitimate cryptocurrency trading app now, this is not something that was available on the App Store. Uh, this was something you would have to seek and somehow know about this company and their website and go and try to download the software. But basically, it says that it's supposed to be allowing you to trade cryptocurrencies. So if you go to their website and you download this app and you install it on your computer, one of the things that happens when you install it is it puts this so-called auto-updater process on your computer. So it's going to be running in the background. And every time you reboot your computer, that process restarts. Now, this if you were actually an auto-updater you, you know, thing that runs in the background, that's, that's fairly common. I think probably a lot of apps do that these days. But it turns out it's not really checking for updates. It's actually phoning home to a command and control server so that your computer basically is now part of a botnet. Now, I, I just have to say that this stuff all sounds like those James Bond movies from the 60s. The Lazarus, oh, Lazarus Group, Lazarus, Lazarus, Command and, and Control, control server, server and all that. It sounds like they're, you know, under in a cave under a mountain someplace and they get in there through like a submarine. Yeah, it, well, and you know, who knows? I don't know where, where their home base is. You know, they've got some secret hideout. I'm sure it's pretty cool. So anyway, these that's basically what you need to know is your computer is probably not infected unless you happened to have downloaded this app that supposedly trades cryptocurrency. Uh, link in the show notes to the article and you'll see the name. So here's what I want to know. Let's assume that I'm mining Bitcoin and I've got, you know, my garage full of GPUs that are running all day, all night to mine Bitcoin. And I've got millions of dollars in Bitcoin as the value goes up and goes down and down and down. Would I actually be gullible enough to just download some random app to trade my Bitcoin, knowing that that app could probably steal it all anyway? You know, this is something that I think people who mine and trade cryptocurrencies need to be very careful about because 
how do you know that you can trust whatever third-party app? I mean, they're all third-party apps. Like, there's no official company that comes out with a uh, you know an app that you can use to trade or mine cryptocurrency. This is something that you kind of um, you kind of have to trust somebody, right? If you're going to run any of this kind of software, so how do you know you know that any app that you download is safe? It's it's definitely, I guess, a kind of a problem because if you had, you know, scanned this with really any antivirus product, nobody knew until just recently that this was malicious because, again, being an APT, they had resources to, you know, do some really clever things to hide the fact that this was malicious. So a firewall, like we talked about recently, would not catch the malicious activity that's going on because it's all encrypted. Um, and so there's no obvious um, indicators that anything bad is happening. Of course, now, you know, now that we know about this, antivirus companies are starting to, to add detection for it. Intego was one of the very first to, to add protection against this threat. But, you know, what if you downloaded it back in April? So, so it is something that people need to be very careful about. And, and, and we always say, check the app store first. It, it, that's definitely always going to be the safest way to get apps. Unfortunately, something like a cryptocurrency trading app is not likely to be. Yeah, I don't think Apple's ever going to support that. So APTs are in the news. You found another great article. And I love reading these headlines, remote Mac exploitation exploitation via via custom custom URL URL schemes. That sounds so Goldfinger. Yeah, this is is super geeky. But I think we can explain it in a way that will make sense to everybody. So so here's what's going on. There's, There's a couple of different very similar attacks that uh, that Patrick Wardle has written up. And uh, th- this is in the context of an APT called Windshift. <laughs> so sounds very pastoral. You're out, you're out having a picnic in a field someplace. Windshift. <laughs> okay. So there's, there, there's kind of two very similar attacks and, and these both exploit the way that Mac OS handles new apps that get dropped onto the system. And it also sort of exploits some things that happen automatically in Safari unless you've turned off a, a feature, which we'll, we'll talk about briefly. Okay, so first explain what a custom URL scheme is, because that is the, the place to start to understand this. Okay, so a custom URL scheme. Let's say that you have a brand new app and it's called Gargle. I don't know. Let's just call it Gargle. And you want links in a browser or a mail app or whatever to automatically open in your app. So you can have Gargle colon slash slash be something that whatever comes after that, it's going to open up in your app. But how does Safari know to do that? Well, that's a good question. So what happens is anytime that a new app, let's say, let's say that you download an app, okay? legitimate app and you download it and you and it has this custom URL scheme thing going on just by having that app on your computer you don't even have to run a custom installer or anything you could even download it from a website and just have it sitting there it could still be in your downloads folder it it just has to be somewhere on your computer and what happens is that macOS takes a look at every new app that comes onto your computer and it assesses it for a couple of things. It checks to see whether it requests the ability to open documents of various types. And it also checks to see if it has any custom URL handlers like 
gargle colon slash slash. <laughs> so it might request to open, let's use the simplest example, text files that end with the .txt suffix. You probably have two or five or a dozen apps on your Mac that can open these files. And if you right click on a text file and you select open with, you'll see all of these. Now there's one by default, it's usually Apple's text edit, but if you wanna change the app that opens all your text files, select a file, press command I, and then you'll see a little pop-up in the section where it says which app is gonna open it, choose a different app, click change all, click okay a couple times as a few dialogues, and in the future that will open every app when you double click it with the app that you've selected. So any app that can open a specific file type can be set to open all files of that type, or at least with that extension, because that's how macOS works. And we've seen something kind of similar to the URL thing with document handlers before, where there's been some malicious Mac apps that have been so-called file openers. And, oh yeah, we can open any type of file. And so they just register themselves uh, as being a handler for anything that might be on ever downloaded onto your system. And basically that's a way that they can constantly have that app opening up on your computer. And this APT, this WinShift APT is actually leveraging this as a way to get itself to automatically open up on your computer. So imagine this, this is a scenario that, that has been seen in the wild. Uh, let's say you are using Safari and you go to a URL. Maybe somebody sent you a link. It looked like something you could trust. You clicked on it, and it takes you to a page. Now that page automatically redirects to a zip file. So it downloads a, a zip file onto your computer. Now Safari, by default, thinks that zip files are totally safe. And so it does some post-processing. So what it does is it extracts that zip archive, and then it just gives you your nice little app in your downloads folder. Isn't that cool? Yes, and that's why we always recommend to everyone to go into Safari's general preferences and uncheck the thing that says open safe files after downloading. Don't ever allow them to open automatically because something may download that you're not aware of. Safari may open it and that may actually launch a file. Yeah, exactly. And so this malicious web page, after they after Safari automatically extracts a zip file, if you have the default setting, then now you've got an app in your downloads folder. And so then the page waits a few seconds, you know, until it's pretty sure that you've probably extracted that zip file automatically. And then it tries to open that custom URL scheme. So uh, in my example, my fake example, gargle colon slash slash. So it'll just try to open that. And then Safari will prompt you and it'll say, oh, hey, um, this app, uh, this page is trying to open something in, you know, your, you know, whatever the name of the app is that was just downloaded. And then um, what's also kind of tricky here is that you can put really whatever you want in that as that name of that app. So you could make it something that sounds totally safe. Like this page wants to, to open apple.com. Oh, okay. That's cool. I don't mind if it redirects to apple.com and it might actually be doing something very different. In fact, it is, it's going to open this app instead. Okay. So is what we have here just a mechanism for a threat to be installed on a Mac or is there an actual threat behind it? Well, yeah, no, it, it is both because Windshift is something that actually has been seen out there. 
so Patrick Wardle didn't have a, a sample of it. And so he basically recreated this uh, method of attack with a proof of concept. So he tried this out on his machine and was able to replicate exactly what this APT was able to do. So there's an interesting graphic near the end of the article. There'll be a link in the show notes. And he shows the five steps. User visits a malicious website. Website triggers a download of a malicious app that's automatically unzipped. Unless, of course, you've listened to what we said before about unchecking that setting. When that happens, the OS automatically registers that custom URL scheme, your gargle colon slash slash. Then the website loads something with that scheme, and then boom, it can launch a malicious application to handle the custom URL request, and you're owned. Yeah. <laughs> kind of scary, isn't it? An app can download and launch automatically without you doing anything to interact with it. So we have a term for that. We call them drive-by downloads, the kind of download that you visit a web page and it just automatically sends something to your downloads folder. And even if you have adjusted that setting in Safari, you may go to your downloads folder and see something, a zip archive. Oh, I must have downloaded that. And it says like happy cat picture or something dot zip. And you say, oh, I must have downloaded that. Let me look at these happy cat pictures. Always be aware of things that appear when you don't expect them. Don't just open something because it's in your downloads folder. Ask yourself if you downloaded it or if it just sort of showed up there on its own. Always be suspicious. <laughs> Always well, suspect that somebody is trying to attack you because they might be. Well, that's the problem in computer security. Some people might say that security researchers like Josh are paranoid, but it's not paranoia. It's being aware of all the possibilities that there are to get at your data and you know, one of the most important things is ensuring that your data isn't necessarily accessible, encryption, all that sort of thing. Don't put passwords on post-it notes and, and all of that. I guess what we need to say is that Josh worries so we don't have to. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I think it's okay. healthy to worry a little bit. Okay, well, you keep losing sleep. This weekend, I'm going to try and clone my finger and see if I can get my iPhone to work. Stay secure, Josh. Stay secure. Thanks for listening to the Intego Mac Podcast, the voice of Mac security, with your hosts, Kirk McElhern and Josh Long. To get every weekly episode, be sure to subscribe at Apple Podcasts or in your favorite podcast app. And if you can, leave a rating, a like, or a review. Links to topics and information mentioned in the podcast can be found in the online show notes for the episode at podcast.intego.com. The Intego website is also where to find details on the full line of Intego security and utility software. Intego.com.